0: It was, um, it was a constant battle because I would spend time with Kevin and we would have the best time. We'd go travelling, we'd have fun. Um, I mean, he wasn't perfect, but he was certainly human. Um, but then I had this niggling, um, this fear inside of me because of the word and the shame associated with heroin.
2: We've got a walk going from Cookham all the way up the Thames Uh, the Thames Path to Westminster. We'll be meeting for a mass lobby of Parliament Tuesday the 25th. It's going on throughout the afternoon and we call any MPs to come and meet us in Room W2 or we'll be out on College Green at 12.30.
1: As you just heard, anyone's child asking you to walk a mile in their shoes. They're walking along the Thames Path all the way to Westminster where there's going to be a mass lobby outside of Parliament. You can join us, you can take part in this discussion, and please do. So, this is a very special episode of Stop and Search on Scooby's Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in Association Elite UK and anyone's child. Here we go. Behind thank you so much for joining us on this very special episode because we're back in parliament again and we're doing it in association with anyone's child there's some very special events taking place and this is why we wanted to get this episode out quickly so it's very unedited quite raw but i think it works and within the episode you're going to hear all the parliamentary business going on so there's alarm bells there's this that and the other but just just yeah, bear with it. Thank you so much for Crispin Blunt's office for helping us organise this one, because without them we wouldn't have been able to have done this. And Crispin Blunt, of course, is the MP for Ryegate, Conservative MP. We've also got Ronnie Cowan, the SNP member for Inverclyde. Also joining us is Thangam Debonair, who is Bristol West MP, and Baroness Meecher, who is a crossbencher in the House of Lords. So we've got a big cross-section of voices there. But we've also got Anne-Marie Coburn from NUI's Child and Rachel Lewis from NUI's Child who give us a massively needed personal perspective of why we're doing this. So without any further ado, let's get straight into this and let's listen to everybody's journey in drug policy reform. So around the table we've got Crispin Blunt, we've got Thang Debonair, Ronnie Cowan, we've got Baroness Meacher, or Molly as I've been told, (laughs) (laughs) Rachel and Anne-Marie. So I'm going to start, if it's all right, with Anne-Marie, because we've just been speaking down in the lobby, and I wish I had the microphones on, (laughs) (laughs) and if I could just move the microphone ever so slightly over towards you. Um, So there was something that you said to me in the lobby, there was something recent that you've done, there was an exhibition that you've just been taking part on, where you had, can you just explain that? Do you remember um, what it was?
3: Okay. In October last year, I decided to have an exhibition um, to celebrate what would have been Martha's twenty-first birthday, and I um, selected twenty-one of her personal objects, from her dressing gown and shoes to her bike, um, and then I found her social media feed on my computer, and I was thinking, and, and her words jumped out at me. You know, she was saying, it's scary how well you do as a teenager can affect your whole life. And then three weeks later, she wasn't here anymore. Um, I, I sort of brought that into a group that I sometimes work with in Oxford, um, who, are, who are about the same age as she was. And by using Martha's objects and her social media feed, these young women just started to talk. And it was quite a phenomenal thing. Um, And it was also great for it to be her words and not my interpretation of Martha because I think when you're campaigning a lot, you get lost in the campaign, you know. And at one point I thought I had to stop and when somebody sort of said to me, who was she? What was she like? I couldn't answer it because I was so ingrained in the the cause. Um, So by doing that exhibition, it was like I was getting back to her and allowing these young women to sort of use the story of her to help themselves. So it was a really great moment in the journey of this.
1: And for people that don't know, um, can you just give us a... Well, I was going to say brief, but you can't give a brief description of what happened. But.
3: Um, July 2013, so it'll be six years ago next month, uh, Martha went out on a Saturday morning, and she was going kayaking, as she always did, at the weekend. Um, She swallowed half a gram of a white powder afterwards and it turned out to be ecstasy that was 91% pure. And she died three hours later. Um, And and that was it, really. I know it's very sort of succinct, but... Yeah, that's where the world changed for me. And um, that's why I do this.
1: And that's, again, it just goes without saying why you are doing this. And it's such a brave move. I think we can all agree, Crispin, is that... Everybody needs an introduction into drug policy reform, and Anne-Marie's is inherently personal. It goes without saying. What was your personal introduction into drug policy reform? What, why did you start getting interested and involved?
4: Well, it came from my appointment as prisons minister uh, in the being of the David Cameron's administration in in twenty ten, a job I held for about two and two and a half years. And uh, I suppose I had had an introduction before that with an organisation called a uh, called rapt the uh, rehabilitation of addicted prisoners trust which operated out of a prison in my constituency and it did really good work with uh, rehabilitating offenders uh, in a class d prison in my constituency and that prison was re-rolled from a male to a female role at two weeks notice by the prison service which destroyed the rapt programme and all the prisoners were scattered all over the uh, the rest of the prison estate because they were then moved from from that prison and that gave me an insight into actually just how much then, which is in about the year 2000, uh, the prison service was engaged in actual rehabilitation um, of offenders and the ability to enable people to, uh, to get off the, off the drugs that got them into trouble in the first place. Then I came in as the minister, determined that something like that would never happen again and that we should be really properly engaged in the rehabilitation of offenders. And then I began to see the scale of the drug problem uh, that we were bringing into prison, not just in terms of the drugs coming into prison, which was obviously quite difficult to police anyway, but actually the fact that so many addicts were, uh, and particularly on the women's estate as well, uh, where people were offending because of their addiction, and then you were trying to treat their addiction inside the prison system. And the saddest thing I would see, and, and I saw it many times on the 70s, to prison visits I made as Minister would be the queue of addicted uh, men queuing up to get their methadone replacement treatment um, then knowing that the services they were going to be discharged to, because quite a lot of them would have been on short sentences given the nature of the uh, offences they had committed, uh, were going to be woefully inadequate uh, in order to sustain them, uh, sustain them afterwards. And the path that we were asking them to go on was almost impossible to achieve in terms of uh, the, the demands of the, of the system that, that abstinence was really the principal objective uh, of policy.
1: So that's quite, quite an early awareness of drug policy reform because it's only been probably, I don't know if you'd agree with this, Jane, but the last 10 years it's really built momentum, so I think that's quite interesting that you've had that insight from such a, such a long time ago. And, and Thangam, I don't know about you and, and your personal journey within drug policy reform. Uh, where, at what point was it on your radar?
5: Um, Well, before I became a politician, it was in a completely different way. And uh, I live in a part of Bristol, which I now represent, um, in which... The uh, the failures of current drug policy are all around me, and that's from the fact that if you want to consume uh, the legal drug of alcohol on a Saturday, um, you have to consume it, you, you have to buy it from a licensed premises. Usually, most people, that's where they'll get it from. The information on the bottle will be ru- usually what it says it is. And that I could see that people around me, people in my city, the same can't be said of the illegal drugs, which may be less harmful in principle, but much more harmful because of A, their criminal nature, and B, the lack of regulation. But then as a Member of Parliament, I was asked to take part in a documentary called Drugsland by the BBC a couple of years ago. And although I already knew a lot of what I learnt, it gave me a much deeper insight into what some of the answers might be. Um, Because I I had a film crew basically following me around my constituency and and the more we looked, the more we found of the the damage that the current policy structure has. So the fact that people's um, recreational as well as addictive drug habits, and they're not the same, um, were being harmed by the illegal and unregulated nature of, of um, the drugs market, the illegal drugs market, but also the bystanders who were being harmed by the criminality of it. So um, I became much more aware of things like cuckooing, where vulnerable people, and that, that happens in my constituency, where vulnerable people, are, their homes are taken over by drug dealers. And again, that's because of its... It's policy, it's where it is as a policy, and how we have this incredibly unhelpful difference between alcohol and tobacco, which are both deadly drugs, but entirely legal, and others, which also have health consequences. You know, I want to be really clear, I don't think there is any drug. Obviously, there is no drug which is completely safe. Of course not. But if you want to consume alcohol or tobacco, there's a regulation behind it which helps protect people and gives them more information. The same is not true. Of somebody who wants to take any other recreational drug, or somebody who has an addiction to an illegal drug,
1: and and this is where I have to bring you and Rachel because mm-hmm. you, you again you you've had your life touched by tragedy, and I've I've read your I've read your piece on anyone's child website many times, but I read it to refresh my memory as I was coming up here, and it's so beautifully written, it genuinely is. It's so personable. Can you just give us, if it's okay, um, your your story of why why you're here and why you're advocating for drug policy reform?
0: Yeah. Um, So I guess my um, entry into drug policy reform world was a bit of a rude awakening on December the 12th, 2017, um, when I had a phone call that my former partner had uh, had an heroin overdose in a public toilet in his hometown. Um, He suffered a cardiac arrest and was later later taken to the hospital Um, And the next day, the family had to make the decision to turn the life support machine off. Um, So that's how I've ended up here. Um, And I can remember instantly feeling really, really angry. Um, And then this whole world of drug policy reform just opened up to me. I had no idea about it before that. I think I spent most of my relationship, like three and a half years with Kevin just hating heroin and not understanding what was behind that. I had no idea about drug policy reform, the laws or anything. I was just hell-bent on hating heroin, wanting it to be out of our lives um, and didn't question anything other than that.
1: And that that came through in your testimony that you was in such conflict. You, you loved mm, Kevin, yeah. but you hated the heroin, and it must have been difficult to, to, to put that together.
0: Yeah, it was, um, it was a constant battle because I would spend time with Kevin and we would have the best time. We'd go travelling, we'd have fun. Um, I mean, he wasn't perfect, but he was certainly human. Um, but then I had this niggling... Um, this fear inside of me because of the word and the shame associated with heroin. Um, And I just lived in a world of fear for three and a half years, thinking, is someone going to think that I'm doing it? Um, At the time, I was a support worker, um, and we used to have a lot of prolific offenders living in the emergency accommodation, many that were suffering with substance misuse. And when um, the word heroin would come... I would just put my head down and hope nobody would ask me anything, so it was constantly living in absolute fear that, yeah, shame, stigma, it was horrible.
1: And that comes up time and again, doesn't it, Barris Meacher, that stigma plays a part in this, is that, and from your, your, can you explain your background and, and potentially what led you into being interested in this subject matter?
6: Yes, I worked in mental health for a long time. I was chair of of a mental health trust. And I used to go around the walls and chat to patients. And I would ask them, why do you take cannabis? Surely it's messing up your treatment, isn't it? You know, I was totally ignorant at that point. And they would all say, it's because it makes me feel human. It makes me feel alive. And I thought, well, that's extremely interesting. Anyway, I just sort of carried that around. Then I became a crossbench peer, and somebody came up to me and said, uh, I think I want to, you put your name down for a debate. And I thought, I've oh, only just got here. Come on, don't be silly. And so, anyway, I put my name down, not thinking it would come up, and it did. And they said, I want a title for your debate <laughs> in an hour. And I thought, oh, gosh. And it just came to me that I wanted to have a debate on drugs because there was something utterly illogical about these patients on our wards who, when they left... Who were the patients, OK? When they left the wards... They would suddenly become a criminal. Why is that? They're not a criminal while they're in the ward, but when they go out of the ward, they are, and then they'd be arrested and all the rest of it. We know the stories. Um, so I had that debate, and all all around the house are all these peers supporting the idea of drug policy reform. And it just um, and then they said, oh, we're going to have an all-party parliamentary group. Your chair. And I thought, oh. <laughs> new girl in the, you know, in the house anyway so for for many years then i i worked to because it seemed to me clear we would never get any kind of reform in this country until the united nations uh, allowed if you like permitted member states to do something different and therefore i spent years going to guatemala and colombia and mexico and the european commission and all over the place and it was a Terrific journey, really, but I certainly learnt the horrors of these whole communities that are completely devastated by what our our use of these drugs and they producing all these drugs for people in Europe and in the USA. And we persuaded the three presidents, um, Guatemala, Mexico, and Colombia, to stand up and demand uh, a new global policy and to demand that the UN took this seriously and did something, and that led to the 2016. Uh, United Nations meeting where the UN did actually say through the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime just to be boring um, did say uh, um, evidence-based public health policy is here to stay those were the words that we had been pushing them to say and they said them and as far as I'm concerned one of our jobs now is to get governments all over the world to know that they said that and that it is now for member states to look at the evidence that prohibition is a disaster, it results in deaths all over the place and terrible waste of people's lives and so on. And and to, as I say, look at the evidence, think about public health, and then it's perfectly obvious what you need to do: reform drug policy, and in the ways that all of us around this table, I'm sure, agree.
1: And I, th- I think Ronnie, you've got a, a very different perspective because. It's on your doorstep, isn't it? You can't escape it where you are. We're, we're now, I think it's, it's official that Scotland is the, you're in, uh, what is it, they're leading Europe
7: in drug deaths, aren't they? Yeah, uh, and not just Scotland, my who of Inverclyde is particularly badly blighted by uh, drug misuse, a bit of bona fide drug use, but uh, yes, we've suffered and we suffered a lot of deaths by it, yeah. So, but I, I came to this pretty much to you guys. Oh, yeah? Really? yeah, I came when I was. I was running my own IT business before I became an MP, and I was very aware. We had a standing joke at Inverclyde, you know, uh, does Inverclyde have a drug problem? The answer is no, there's plenty for everybody. And that was the sort of the attitude towards it, you know. Uh, so that was my attitude pretty much until I got elected. And I, you sort of take a step back as an IT consultant doing my job, what can I do about it? Why would I get involved in this? It's not interfering in my life, and it's purely not affecting. Drugs were not affecting many people I knew. People who were maybe doing drugs were quite happy doing drugs. They were comfortable with their intake. It wasn't affecting their lives. As we know, 90% of users don't have a problem with, with drugs, uh, as long as they're getting the right stuff to take and it's been, uh, been tested and cleared, which is one of the problems we we'll run into later on. So I came by and uh, I came to one of your events. It was on the leap year. It was leap day. Yeah, it was leap yeah. And I came listen to you guys and. Uh, what hit me most was that these were people from law enforcement agencies, I think it was somebody from MI6 or something else, a captain who'd been out in Afghanistan, was like a, a police officers, and they were saying, we've got it all wrong. And I thought, if these guys are prepared to stand and say, we've got it all wrong, then I should listen to them. And the testimony they gave that day it just blew me away and completely changed my attitude. I don't think I was entranced beforehand, but I thought, I've got to listen to this and I've got to become more knowledgeable about this. And what I found very frightening was I basically read two books, I read Johan Harry's Chasing the Scream, and I read Neil Wood's Good Cop, Bad War, and I found I knew more than most of my fellow MPs, and I thought, this is quite scary. You know, There's people here in the home office, there's people in health, and I'm saying things to them, and it's like, they're just not getting it. And I found myself trying to explain it to them, not because they weren't intelligent people, they weren't getting it. They didn't want to get it. They were entrenched in this attitude towards drugs. Drug takers were bad people, and they should be criminalised, and they should be banned up in prison, and that's not solving anything, but hey, what else can you do with these people? And I thought, it's a a mindset we have to change. So I get more and more, got myself more involved, read more, listened a lot, went to a lot of my own local groups and talked to people in rehabilitation, uh, and asked them, you know, why they got into the situation and what they wanted to do about it, and just learned from the experts as I tried to do it in most uh, fields, and these people were the experts, they'd walk to walk and talk to talk, and they knew a lot more about it than the people I was trying to talk to in the home office and uh, in the health department. Uh, So that was my path into it. And uh, I move on from that to, I think that was probably a a broad canvas if you like. That gave me a a foundation on which I could then put more detail into. And the detail came about and looking at the criminality behind it and seeing how people were being dragged into this war, if you like. We now know about county lines, we now know about uh, the, the cuckooing that Thangum mentioned and these other aspects where people were getting dragged into and innocent people were getting pulled into a war to make money. I mean, if you're a young kid growing up in a state, and you can make 80, 80 grand a year, 100 grand a year, selling a few pills at a nightclub in a week, you know, i would say, why not? You know? But then you, you don't know what you're selling you're getting criminalised you're potentially killing people, you get binded up in prison, somebody else comes along and replaces you and we don't go any further forward. So whole aspects of that became seeping into my psyche. And once it's in there and you become aware of it, it's everywhere.
5: Yes.
7: Yeah, and you hear today, I mean, today I have to say, we a, we're still pushing drug consumption rooms. And today in PMQs, I was with theorist asked a question and you just saw, that the faces just glazed over The government's bench, they don't want that conversation. We have taken them to DCRs who said, This is it, it works. Canada, Spain, Portugal, Switzerland, it works, and they're still in complete denial about it. And that's unfortunately the the place we are at. I'm
1: going to put you on the spot, uh, Crispin, because. uh Ronnie mentioned that um, we've almost got this, this fear of experts, and it comes from a quote from, I think it, it was Michael Gove, I think, wasn't it, a few years ago. Um, how, from your position, because you've got a very unique position, Crispin, how do you think things are shaping up with regards to people listening? Do you think that there is an appetite for
4: reform? No, I think there is an appetite for reform, and it's almost as though the glacier that's, that's laid over drug policy globally since the Americans drove the world into uh, global prohibition in the 1961 convention and then implemented in the United Kingdom through the Misuse of Drugs Act in 1971 uh, that finally people are waking up to the consequences of that policy and uh, the work that, that we heard that, uh, Molly talking about an international level of uh, which then obviously helped result in the Global Commission on, on Drug Policy with 15 or 16 former heads of state of, of countries who have been uh, badly affected by uh, by drugs, with people like George Schultz and Kofi Annan having ser- served on it. I think these people are speaking with huge authority, uh, uh, based based on their experience, and uh, and then you, as you begin to get into this space and begin to understand it, then you see that the experts in public health and in uh, in, in medicine elsewhere are are of. Uh, beginning to actually start publishing in this area and doing reports on it. If you've got the the Royal College of Public Health getting engaged in here, general practice and the rest, all wanting now to talk about this because of the health consequences of this, Uh, and then you throw in the criminal justice element where we are uh, seeing a criminal justice disaster with half of acquisitive crime in the United Kingdom driven by addiction, Uh, then you begin to wake up to the scale of the harms our current policy is doing, and I think I'm finding uh, on the uh, conservative side of the House, the government benches that um, uh, Ronnie was describing glazing over, um, that actually uh, they're starting to engage. And uh, the fact that uh, perhaps that I was the first conservative to be, become a co-chair of the all-party parliamentary group that Molly started uh, on drug policy reform is an indicator of the fact that, that uh, the terms of the debate on this are moving, they're moving in Britain, but as importantly, they're moving globally. And we're seeing uh, different progress in, in different jurisdictions in different ways uh, all over the world, but we're now beginning to see real solid progress. And now is the time to really put our shoulder to the wheel and try and you know, push hard for evidence-based consideration of, of, of what we've done and uh, have a policy that's about reducing the total harm to society that our drugs policy is doing.
8: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about juvederm lip fillers. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
8: life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com
5: so um, i mean i had um, um, a moment with an expert during the course of filming Jugsland um where Uh, I met with David Nutt, but also a colleague of his, and it was actually the colleague who said to me, can you imagine a world in which um, all drugs were legally available in a shop? And I said, well, as a politician, you're making me really nervous. And he said, the thing is, we already have a drug shop, and it's all around you. It's just illegal and unregulated and therefore really, really dangerous. And my office at the time isn't there anymore, um, partly because of this reason. My constituency office was in a place where the drug shop was literally visible from our windows. We could see deals being done. We could also see violence taking place. We could see people shooting up. Uh, We could see people consuming other drugs. We could see some of the ill effects of really dangerous drugs because they were unregulated and people taking them had no idea what they were taking. We could also, I remember one occasion seeing someone who we, we thought might have been sexually coerced uh, into paying for drugs. You know, we had to call the police numerous times, we had to call the drugs clean-up team at the council and this was basically, we were, we were in a drug shop. Now that drug shop still exists, it's in my constituency and I think it's in a lot of our constituencies. And it's putting people in in danger purely because of the laws on drugs. Now, I'm not pretending that I know what the answers are because, you know, I've also got a problem with the fact that alcohol is incredibly dangerous and it's legal. Um, So just because something's legal doesn't make it safe, obviously. But when it is legal, we can have that sort of regulatory curve, which is you go from either a completely illegal, unregulated market to a legal regulated market, and probably somewhere around here is where we need to be, which is taking into account the relative harms of different substances, I actually would like alcohol regulated more. I would like the health harms of alcohol on the labels. Um, But as it happens, we don't have any of that on on any of the means of consumption of any other, uh, of illegal drugs, and that puts people in in harm. And I think that light bulb moment for me was an expert saying to me, Imagine a world in which there is a drug shop. That world exists.
1: I'm going to come to you in a sec, Ronnie, because I want to speak to Anne-Marie again. Of, I want to know how you've seen in the... Was it six years, I think you said? In the six years that you've been campaigning, uh, especially with anyone's child, how have you seen the, the, the debate evolve?
3: Um, initially, when I said what had happened and then what my beliefs were, which was for all drugs to be legally regulated... You, I got this kind of quite aggressive response of you know what's she not understanding? Why she's saying that? And I could just see the fear in people's faces. My story creates fear. I do understand that. Um, but now it's more of an inquiry into well, show me how that looks. You know, so there's less defensiveness, there's less of an attack, um, and that's just in a very short space of time. So that's made a big difference. Even on, you know, the Daily Mail online, which I hate to say those words, but the day after Martha died, I don't know why, but I was just... You know, the stuff went out there without any control on my part. Sadly, you know, I didn't get the chance to keep the story quiet. And underneath this horrific headline in Martha's face was this really horrible online sort of comments and in that moment I surrendered to all of it and I thought you've done me a favor because none of you know me you don't know my child you don't know my family you don't know my life um and I from then on I had the courage then to sort of say well it's all out there I can't do anything about it so I will find my way I will research I will learn everything I can I'll meet the experts and then the A couple of years ago, I think there was another piece. Um, I don't know if we had done it through anyone's child or otherwise, but underneath, again, more comments. And there was the odd negative comment, but other people online were sort of putting them right. So it felt like there was, you know, a small bit of education there in a very short space of time. And for someday in my shoes, it's a great moment just to know that it is happening. Um, And that one day this will be in the history books and we will all be obsolete and that'll be great and we can all go off quietly.
1: Do you, do you agree with that Rachel? Because um, I, I know someone else that's read your story and and it's particularly touching what you've written because I think that in, in the NEI's Child um, in the campaign it's you know my ch- my daughter, my son and I think yours is your soulmate, isn't it? Um, how, how do you think things are evolving? Have you got hope for where we're going?
0: I feel like in the end yes it just has to go that way we have to have a drug policy reform um i just don't understand why it isn't happening now because i mean all the evidence seems to be there already and it just frustrates me to think that we st- the government are still dragging their feet and nothing's been done um i mean i had a meeting with my own police and crime commissioner and his fear was that a drug consumption room would become a honey pot um To which I said, I've actually just arrived back from Bern in Switzerland and it did not look like a honeypot to me. So, I mean, I go in search of the evidence, I read the books. Um, Grief puts you on that path where you just go searching for all the answers and you leave no stone unturned. And you sort of become an expert in a field that you didn't plan on qualifying in. Um, So to me the answers are already there. It's just a matter of when.
1: That is such a good point, isn't it, Anne-Marie? Because we were saying this as well, is that once you find the entry, you do. You have to find ways of being knowledgeable and being the expert in this. And you've done that, I think.
3: Well, I'm an expert in my own story, and I'm an expert in sort of channeling the void of the pain that Martha filled in my life. And um, I never saw myself as any kind of Public speaker in the past, but on her behalf, I absolutely will stand in this position um, and keep annoying people with this. they will sit torn and just not give up until we get what's required, um, and it will be better for everyone in our society.
1: Uh, would you agree with that, Baroness Meacher? That the, the testimony from people like uh, Marie and Rachel does that count? And are people in the Lords listening to this?
6: I mean, in my view, on the media. There's just nobody to compare with you. I mean, I can go and talk about it, but if you go and talk about it, people really, really listen, because they know you absolutely know um, what you're talking about in a different sort of way, and it's so obviously authentic, and and the loss of these young people is just such an absolute outrage, and it it, it sort of somehow drives home to these politicians that... I hadn't really thought about this, you know, and and our policies, they're not actually based on evidence about what is safe for young people at all. And, of course, that's the point about the United Nations conventions. They were all made up under US uh, guidance, I would say, or sort of pressure, um, based on morality, a sort of uh, Christian deluded kind of morality, nothing to do with evidence at all. And I think you bringing... In just what happens actually on the you know, in people's lives when you have morally driven or pseudo morally driven policies rather than policies that really really work and save people. So I, I think your your contribution is absolutely massive and far greater than anything we can ever do. To be perfectly frank, I mean we'll pile in there and and do what we can, and we produce reports, and we argue, and I'm going to go and talk in the (laughs) knife crime debate next week to just lay it out again, you know, why do we have knife crime? We know why we have knife crime. It's all to do with our ludicrous drug policies and so on and so on. We can do all that, but you're the people who really make the difference, in my view, more than anybody.
1: And I know you is itching, Ronnie, to come in on a point. (laughs) So go on, go for it. I'm going to just queue you up.
7: Well... um, Going back to what you said, we absolutely need the lived experience, the personal testimony is so powerful and it must be really hard for people doing this to go back and revisit and revisit, I'm sure people want to move on with their lives. But if politicians aren't going to listen to politicians, they have to listen to people living in the real world. Um, It is moving forward, it's moving forward at a snail's pace, unfortunately. But things can move very, very quickly if you get the right people in the right place. Uh, And right people, there's a new panel been set up, the Home Office, and they've denied uh, Neve Eastwood a place on that panel. Neve is the Executive Director of Release, the UK's National Centre of Expertise on Drugs and Drug Law. And the Home Office are saying, we don't need you. And the same thing they did with David Nutt, Professor David Nutt a few years ago. And unless they're prepared to listen to that sort of level of expertise, they will never learn. It goes back to my aspect, they don't want to learn. They're entrenched in what they know and they don't want to open up to that. Hopefully, where well, we've got a Tory party leadership going right now, and they seem to be quite kind of open about their own personal drug use, you'd like to think these people are more open-minded to it. I'll leave that hanging there.
6: Come say, you know, again, a family story, if you like. I mean, the, home, the Alfie Dingley family met with all the main officials in the Home Office, uh, the, the ministers in the Home Office, ministers uh, in the Health Department. Those people learnt from that family that cannabis is actually a medicine. I know it's not... Um, um, uh, ecstasy, or indeed heroin, but they certainly learnt that this illegal drug was incredibly helpful for this poor little boy who was becoming completely and utterly brain damaged. That learning is still there. So you know, certain things move things forward a bit, and then six months later, you know, we had the rescheduling. It's a it's a, a tiny step. Um, but these people do need to learn. They're in their little ivory towers. They know nothing about uh, what's going on out there, it seems to me.
7: But can I say, what they learned was how to take it and then marginalise it. Alfie Dingley got his medical cannabis through the Home Office. Yeah. There have been not one NHS prescription written for medical okay. cannabis in over a year. So what they yeah. do is they took it. They took it away straight away. And we're still in that situation. I'm fighting for kids in Scotland to get medical cannabis. They've got a prescription for it, they've got a source for it, and they can't get it unless they smuggle it illegally into the country. If that's, right, but if, that's
6: you, if, if for 60 years you have the United Nations, the whole globe, and our government and everybody else, preaching that these drugs are dangerous, bad things doctors have picked up that for for sixty years. It's gonna take time for these doctors to learn. But at least the Department of Health are issuing guidance, they're issuing training courses, they're doing this, doing that. It's going to take time, well, but, it's and it's yeah, agonising.
7: But you know. But they've not given it to GPs. I in the specialist register. I know.
1: I'm going to step in here. So <laughs> Just oh, I can't okay. believe I'm doing that. <laughs> but because we've only got about well less than five minutes now, it's, it's gone so quick. And I I, I need to thank Tarsalo for everything he's done setting this up because goodness knows you 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 more than earn your money helping us out on doing this. Um, so if I can have. Uh, a wrap up point from everybody on the panel and just to reiterate why we're doing this so next week uh, if you're listening to this it, there's going to be a walk from actually Jane can you yeah. grab on a microphone and tell us what's the what it's in aid of
2: we've got a walk going from Cookham all the way up the Thames uh, the Thames path to Westminster we'll be meeting for a mass lobby of parliament tuesday the 25th it's going on throughout the afternoon and we call any MPs to come and meet us in room W2 or will be out on College Green at 12.30? I mean, to answer your previous question as well, I mean, I've worked in this field now 12 years. I'm very positive that this debate has a new volume of support behind it, and I think it's really important that people join us on this lobby and that we start to show MPs that the public attitude on this has shifted. We know this, working and campaigning on this, more and more people are coming in and saying, look, we totally agree, And I think we need MPs to catch up and and join us at this point. But the tragedy is, is there are 70 families every week in Amory and Rachel's boat. And my inbox, the number of stories I get in every single day of families calling for change is so tragic. And that is where the urgency comes in. And I think it's such an important issue that people start to speak out on this.
1: So if I can have a wrap-up point from Chris.
4: Ronnie is quite right to be impatient for... Uh, for change, and as the point was just made, that every every week we delayed, more people die as a consequence of uh, where our drugs policies sit now, uh, and more people are denied the benefit from access from medicine from cannabis, for example, because we have were being terribly slow about uh, about getting on and releasing those those potential benefits. But the world is changing, and next week as well. Um, Anyone's Child will be part of the presentation of a new group called the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group, which I'm going to be very proud to uh, present and chair, um, in order to get new weight into the argument for drug policy reform uh, on the centre-right of politics. And if we can get uh, an alliance right across the whole political spectrum to say that we have now got to sit up and pay attention to actually the scale of harm being done to our society by our current state of our drugs policies, and we've now got to look at the evidence of that harm and decide whether or not uh, we can do this better. And we can, and it's up to us to make the case.
1: And and Thangham, we've
4: got to be really quick now,
1: because I'm holding you all up, but there's been a lot of movement in Labour, hasn't there, with, with, again, a similar grassroots movement, to what Crispin just explained. Yeah, I
5: mean, the Labour campaign for drug policy reform, which is sort of the parallel of of what Crispin's doing, and and I'm very proud of the reception that we've had at Labour Party conference, Labour members, and around the country, but I know that the the Alfie Dingley moment, there was a real breakthrough there, because I walked into a small room, just like this one, nervously thinking, oh, gosh, I wonder who's going to be there, and the room was packed, now, that's a huge shift even in the four years since I've been a Member of Parliament in which MPs are prepared to say, actually, I think our current laws don't work. And that was just on one aspect. But I've seen that also with drug, uh, not just drug consumption rooms, but also the policy on drug safety testing. Uh, when I had a police minister in a debate that I had who basically said, yes, actually, this is allowed. And it is within the legal framework. So, you know, I think we've had real movement and I'm really proud to be part of that. But I am so impatient too. I'm with Ronnie.
1: And if you're listening to that, that's the, uh, the bell going off. Do you, anybody
5: need to vote at
1: all? No, cool. And
7: then,
1: Ronnie, um, from you, a, a wrap-up point.
7: A wrap-up point. You know, it's, it's one of those things... Yes, I'm frustrated and I get very angry about the situation. The big stumbling block right now, from my perception, is the Home Office. Uh, I said, touched earlier, we running a Conservative Party leadership race, which means a new PM. There will be a major shake-up... In their cabinet and who they put in place and the right person in the right place can make things happen very very quickly yes. so all we can really at this stage is hope and i know it's a, bit of a sad thing to say when, when pandora's box was empty the only thing left was hope and i find that quite a despairing situation but if we get the right person who's enlightened to this then they can make great things happen but what they need is us to be con- constantly nudging them from behind and letting them know that they've got our support and if we've got the support of the public then Politicians are keen on that. It sort of fuels us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the public are got to keep on pushing this, do all the great stuff they are doing, and to individuals, educate your MP. Lobby them like crazy. We look to our mailbox and think, why is everybody writing to me on this subject? So badger the life out of them.
1: <laughs> would you agree that, like, baroness major oh
6: very much so. actually i'm as impatient if not more so than anybody else actually having been around this for about 10 12 years i suppose but but i having got medical cannabis supposedly over the line actually with so little result i've now concluded we've got to legalize cannabis uh, across the piece for adult social use and i i'm very very keen for something to be done about uh, ecstasy because if only that could be Cannabis and ecstasy, if they could be legally available and regulated, it seems to me a lot of these um, unknown um, synthetic psychotic substances would just disappear, there'd been very little interest in them, so we'd have an in- incredibly much safer world. Uh, for young people if only we could just get those two and heroin needs to be dealt with very specially as the Swiss do in special uh, clinics it seems to me that's a very difficult area to tackle but we know how to do it Swiss have shown us how to do it so there's no excuse anymore for continuing with the, with the prohibitionist strategy.
1: And in the final words very very quickly I'm sorry to do that to you both but if we can have a wrap-up point from Anne-Marie and Rachel on what is your hope what do you think?
3: And like I said earlier, my hope is it will be in the history books and we will become obsolete. But I am optimistic, and if I'm optimist, if I can be optimistic when I've lost my only child, then you know, where there is hope, anything is possible. So the Any One Child campaign's made a, a lot of traction in a very, very short space of time. The last parliamentary debate on this had sixty members in the chamber, um, the previous one had twelve, and that was. 2013, 14, 2017. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of progress as far as I'm concerned.
1: And Rachel?
0: Um, Well, my hope is that obviously I stop after opening up newspapers and seeing the same heartbreaking stories over and over again. Um, Sometimes I wonder, I mean, we have the statistics that show how many deaths there are in the UK every year. But if we had the statistics to show that how many bereaved people were affected by each individual, the statistics would be insane. They already are, but, you know, it just ripples out. One person dies, but that person has friends, families, co-workers, and those people are still here, and they are still suffering in society. So I hope that it changes for them.
1: That's a perfect point to end on. And thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. We're going to chuck everything in the bag now because we're running over. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for sponsoring us through this room. All right, let's keep working at it then, shall we? Thank you so much for joining us. And as we all said in that episode... You need to play your part. If you can keep sharing, keep sharing, liking, subscribing, doing all what you do, share this podcast, share the stories from anyone's child. Join us at the lobby if listening to this beforehand. These are all what we need to do. So if you can find anyone's child on Twitter at anyone's child, find their website where you can find all the testimonies and stories from the members, which is at anyone's child.org. And they are so powerful. They really, really are. And of course, if you fancy finding us at Leap, at UK Leap. It's our Twitter and ukleap.org, our website. And Anyone's Child and Leap UK are both on Facebook, as you'd imagine. Thank you to Nicky and Tristan, the producers of this, for giving up their time their afternoon for coming into Parliament and, and recording this very quickly. So let's keep working on it. We can do this. We can get this over the line. Thanks for listening. Bye.
4: Behind.